For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The Secretary of State's office says sometime next week it should know the exact number of signatures turned in by supporters of State Question 803 to recall permitless carry and put it before voters in 2020. The Secretary of State originally said the count would wait until after a Supreme Court challenge. Ryan, why do you think there was a change to go ahead with the signature count? Well, I think that it makes a lot of sense. Your courts just in general, whether it's the Supreme Court of the state or the Supreme Court uh, at the, the federal level, they generally don't like to weigh in on something unless they absolutely have to. Uh, you know, they, they're very reluctant about uh, any sort of pronouncements that could create precedent, that could create new law. And so if they get to the point where they don't have the signatures necessary for this to even be something for consideration on the ballot, there's really no sense for them to weigh in. And, and so this makes a lot more sense to me. Whenever the, uh, when the Secretary of State originally said, we're going to hold off on the count and we're going to wait on this legal determination, it's like, well... If you're going to wait on a legal determination, but there doesn't have any need for it, uh, then you're really putting the court in an awkward position of making a statement about something that may not even exist. And I think by all accounts, the signature collection was just amazing. I mean, they collected, you know, nearly 60,000 and maybe over Mm 60,000 signatures uh, in 12 days. Odds are they fell a little bit short. I think that it demonstrates an enormous amount of intensity around this uh, issue of permitless carry. I wouldn't be surprised if we see this, if we don't see this as a standalone ballot question uh, moving forward into November of 2020. Neva? I think that's right. I think the expectation is if if indeed it does fall short, and that still remains to, right. to yeah. be seen. I mean, they could eke by and, and just barely have enough signatures, but actually have enough to get it on the ballot. So I think, I think there um, seems to be, at least out there, in general, a consensus that this is not an issue that's going to go away and that there is a great intent on the part of these folks to try to get it on the ballot in 2020. And just go uh, go ahead, Well, Michael. I was going to say, it makes, probably makes it easier if they do it again, because right now the, the ballot question would be, should this go forward? Should do, are you voting for the bill? Yes. Then if you don't like it, then you'd vote no. Whereas yeah. if you did it the, the right way, which be, should it be repealed, you'd vote yes. And then, yeah. Well, and they could potentially, you know, craft the message. They could craft the ballot measure in a way that, you know, maybe would go further, would be more targeted. I mean, they are... They are bound by the statute that they're trying to invalidate here. And right. so that's that's the that's the four corners that you have to operate in. And so if you go forward with your own ballot measure, you can start off by doing some polling to see where the people of Oklahoma are at, uh, you know, and then craft something that may be even more uh, sweeping and of a reform than just invalidating a statute. Some inside baseball is interesting here. Kevin Calvey, Commissioner Kevin Calvey in Oklahoma County, if you read the briefs that have been filed by the Second Amendment Association and the legislators that are trying uh, to keep to invalidate the uh, referendum, um, Kevin Calvey is the attorney of record on that. So I just thought that it was kind of interesting to see, you know, former state legislator, current Oklahoma County Commissioner and serving as counsel on this case for the Second Amendment Association. It is going to be fascinating because when we think about this was the very first bill that the governor signed into mm-hmm. law. And this is something that when you talk about uh, the issue with Second Amendment folks and uh, certainly the Oklahoma Second Amendment Association, which has been the driving force uh, uh, in opposition to uh, this referendum uh, effort, th- the whole bottom line is the the 
the bill does take effect November 1st. And I think uh, I think for the Second Amendment folks, they would like to see some quick resolution on this so that it get kind of gets off the board. I think that's wishful thinking at this point, given the intensity that we're seeing out of the uh, proponents on this referendum measure. Well, now it'll go into effect even if they do start a ballot measure, right? I mean, even if they say, okay, well, this fails, this one, and then they get start a ballot measure for right. 2020, that won't stop it from going into effect. No, it, it'll go into effect November 1, you know, barring... Barring a, I mean, even with the signature, even with the ballot measure, if the ballot measure moves forward, the effective date's November 1, and, and that's going to go into effect, you know, regardless of whether or not this makes it on the ballot for a referendum on that, st- on that statute that the governor signed last year, or this year. A state lawmaker files a bill to protect Oklahoma from federal red flag laws. Senator Nathan Dom wants to make sure the state doesn't have to adhere to laws attempting to take gun ownership away from people deemed dangerous. Neva, what do you think of this bill? Well, I think I think like a lot of these bills, uh, it's really seizing upon the national conversation on this issue more than what's going to take place in the legislature next year. I mean, when you look at the 17 states that have uh, red flag laws, I mean, most of them, I think, uh, if you were to classify them, uh, they oftentimes are uh, said to be left-leaning. I mean, these are states that have reacted, mainly uh, uh, on the eastern seaboard, have reacted to uh, either shootings, a high school shooting, um, some of these mass shootings that have taken place. And the and when you really look at these individual states and the laws, uh, they're kind of all over the board in terms of what the in terms of the petitioners that can you know start this process. They really widely very. Uh, so I think uh, for Oklahomans, I mean, there's not, again, a great deal of interest in, in this conversation. I think uh, Congressman Frank Lucas, I mean, he, he made the point uh, last week uh, saying that the, the potential for abuse um, going down this road is incredible. And I think that is a takeaway that you hear uh, quite frequently here in Oklahoma. Right. Well, if Senator Dom wants to invalidate some perspective uh, federal law. And that's, I mean, it's very perspective. I mean, there's no imminent, uh, I, there's no imminent likelihood that there's going to be a federal red flag law. I mean, the, the, the likelihood of any sort of meaningful gun reform making its way through Congress and then being signed by the president and then being enforced against the states, the, the odds of that are incredibly low. And so really what this is, I think, is Senator Dom trying to posture himself as he has many times before on the Second Amendment. And it's, it's really about that, because if you want to in, uh, invalidate a federal law, whether uh, on its face or as it's applied to a state, you don't do it by filing a bill and saying we're going to nullify the law. You do it by going through the judiciary. If, if, a, if a law is unconstitutional, you challenge it in the courts. And uh, if it's not unconstitutional, you know, surprise, the, the federal law is the supreme law of the land. I mean, that's stated in the United States Constitution, but it's not just stated in the United States Constitution. Folks that want to, you know, uh, hang their hand on the mantle of states' rights and the Tenth Amendment, and we reserve all these powers. Well, one of the powers uh, that the state of Oklahoma exercised in the drafting of its own constitution was that early, early on, it says that the people of Oklahoma have a right to know that their laws are consistent with the federal laws in the federal United States mm-hmm. Constitution. And so uh, just you know, passing a bill that says we're going to nullify it, that's just not how it's done. Governor Stitt is shaking up the Department of Public Safety. Shortly after Commissioner Rusty Rhodes abruptly de- resigned on Labor Day, Stitt replaced him with Bureau of Narcotics Director John Scully. The agency is also losing Highway Patrol Chief Michael Harrell and DPS Assistant Commissioner Megan Simpson. Ryan, what do you think of this shakeup? You know, I just, you know, first, you know, I want to, you know, say thanks to Commissioner Rhodes for his many years of public service. I mean, he's he's been a public servant even before he served at the top leadership position at the Department of Public Safety. 
Uh, I think that there has been a lot of you know chaos over the last several months with the you know, allegations where there's uh, there are criminal allegations and now we're dealing with civil uh, suits in, in the in the agency as well. And so I, I can see how the governor wants to you know shake things up to create some continuity and some consistency and move some of because a lot of the a lot of the chaos does seem to revolve around personalities. You know whether that's right or wrong, that's at least the perception. And so. Bringing new personalities in, I think uh, the governor's trying to bring some stability there. I would say the biggest problem, and the governor said he wants to do this because there hasn't been a lot of action on Real ID uh, and getting the state compliant with Real ID requirements. I'm not worried about that. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about DPS testing sites. If you look at you know driver's license testing sites around the state, that's the real critical uh, short uh, shortcoming uh, for the agency right now hours long waits. I mean, I, I've got to go in and get an eye test for a motorcycle endorsement. And, you know, I'm going in, I've got to go show up at the South side of Oklahoma city at six 30 and get in line and wait three hours. And if you want to schedule an appointment, it's a month out. And if you look at rural sites, it's even worse. And so there, there are a lot of problems in DPS and you know, hopefully new leadership will be charged to do that and not just worry about real ID. Aneva, John Scully, certainly no stranger to public safety as well. Absolutely. I mean, here's someone who, uh, uh, was with the State Narco- Narcotics Bureau for three years, but prior to that, he had been uh, a career um, uh, officer with the Oklahoma City Police Department. His, his last eight years there, he was a deputy chief. So he's someone who has demonstrated strong management skills, and I think that is uh, one of the things that the governor uh, clearly indicated he was looking for, someone who could go in and kind of change the culture and clean up uh, what needed to be done organizationally and some of the things that Ryan's just mentioned – have been concerns across the board with a lot of folks. So I think that, uh, again, what, what we're seeing is the governor making a very uh, a direct uh, uh, effort to, uh, d- to deal with an agency and put someone at the helm that he believes uh, fits the management style that he's looking for. This all goes back to legislation that was passed earlier this session that allowed him to uh, basically hire and fire anybody in, in five different agencies, the Department of Public Safety being one of them. Do, is, do are we done? Do you think, or we still got mental health? We still got what? what do you think? Department? Health department. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be some more? You know, I, it's. I think it's difficult to tell. I mean, the governor seems to be you know, really thinking about these decisions, but the 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 thought process that isn't really there's not a lot of transparency to it. He's, he doesn't have a blog or something where he's like up at night journaling about. <laughs> you know, these are my considerate. And so, <laughs> you know, this this I think was probably something that's been the talk in the governor's office for quite some time. But then whenever you see these early retirements from uh, from Commissioner Rhodes and, and other folks within the department, you know, it, it happens really fast. And so as the public, we're kind of left to digest and, you know, we, you know, kind of speculate as to what really was happening there and what what's the real problem within the agency that the governor's trying to solve. And if you remember, even back in February, Attorney General Hunter made the uh, made the point that there needed to be policy changes uh, within DPS. I mean, when he was talking about the, uh, the promotions process and trying to make sure that there was no appearance of impropriety. I mean, so there have been a lot of issues swirling around, and now we have a new man at the helm. He'll go through Senate confirmation uh, when the, when they're back in session in February. But I think we'll see uh, probably some fairly significant changes quickly. And D- DPS is one of those agencies you know, where obviously we've seen increased revenue and some new funding for the agency, but they're well behind what they need to actually accomplish the mission, whether that's you know testing sites or officers that are on the road for the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. And I still have to wonder if. Is this is, is anyone concerned about the fact that there's going to eventually be a new governor, either in in 2022 or 2026? 
I, if he if he or she comes in and then basically does the exact same thing, you've got now people in charge of agencies every four to eight years. I mean, that's kind of what we work with at the, at the federal system. That's why you know state employees uh, provide an enormous amount of continuity and intellectual uh, knowledge uh, to how these agencies work. We don't appreciate our state employees nearly uh, as much. And I think that once if we start to see higher turnover in these leadership positions, you know, those those folks that aren't political appointees uh, that, that haven't risen through the ranks by appointment by the governor or the and then confirmed by the Senate. You know, those career employees that are going to really make sure that those agencies are accomplishing their missions. And I would agree. I mean, much like uh, the president uh, and you have the changing of an administration at the national level, at the, at the state level, we are seeing kind of a different mindset uh, being created. And I think even when a governor then runs for reelection, uh, if they choose to, I mean, they have four years of, of history of what's gone on with the, with the folks that they've put in place in these major agencies heads and so I think that there will be a lot more scrutiny and there and there will be a lot more uh, pressure I think on these folks to be able to deliver or they probably won't be around for a long time. The Federal Election Commission is flagging a bank loan taken out by Tulsa Congressman Kevin Hearn. This stems from a $650,000 loan from a bank Hearn helped create and govern. The loan was supposed to be paid back in June, but was restructured after he had only repaid 30000 toward the principal. Neva, what do you think of this investigation? Well, I think I think it's, it's the paperwork process with the FEC. I mean, if you run for federal office, if you are in federal office and you have a campaign committee, you have very explicit rules that you must follow. And so this loan, there, this loan had to had to meet certain criteria when it was taken out. And then if, from a paperwork standpoint, on the last filing, uh, even though that loan was restructured at the end of June, it should have been reflected on the on the paperwork that they received in Washington in July at the FEC. That didn't happen, so it triggered, I mean, it triggered these uh, um, uh, this investigation, so to speak. But really, it's for clarification and to make sure that what has been done uh, meets the uh, that meets the standard, and that uh, there's the proper follow through on the paperwork side. Right. Well, I, I think that it also shows that there's kind of a, uh, a real reliance on personal finances uh, for Representative Hearn's uh, fundraising and for the way he runs his campaigns. I mean, he outspent opponents in that Republican primary uh, back in 2018. Uh, by almost a two to one margin, if not greater, he outspent his Republican or his Democratic uh, opponent in the general election by like you know two million to four hundred thousand. I mean, so I mean, but he's he's bringing in a lot of this money on his own. He's made personal investments in the campaign, and now he's got this loan. Most of us couldn't walk in and get a loan of that size without any sort of collateral at that interest rate. I mean, that's to me. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything untoward or illegal about it, but it does kind of demonstrate that the ability to have access. I mean, if you're part of a, a bank and you're part of the leadership and you can walk in and get a loan like this without that kind of collateral, that's not the experience of most folks in the first district. Um, so it's, I don't think it's a good look for the, for the congressman. And it is interesting moving into the 2020 election cycle. If he wants to hang on to that congressional seat, it may, it may not be a Democrat that unseats him, but if Republicans are at, I mean, Senator Nathan Dom, I mean, he's obviously positioning himself politically with the second amendment conversation that he's having right now with voters. I mean, if Senator Dom who challenged him in that primary before were to come at him again, I don't think that Congressman Hearn is in a position financially to really say that he's going to scare off primary opponents. Neither he does run a re-election campaign next year, uh, although it might not be illegal, according to the FEC or anything else. 
is he concerned or should he be concerned about any kind of feeling of impropriety? There? I don't think folks, I think the voters don't pay a lot of attention to, um, you know, how much money is being raised and how much money is being spent. That's kind of the inside baseball, mm-hmm. uh, the backside that the political types, you know, pay attention to. He has only about $100,000 uh, in his campaign account right now, and yet he's got over a million dollars in outstanding loans, all of that to him, or, you know, or at least the, the biggest percentage. He put 800000 uh into the campaign in in just personal money in addition to the to the bank loan that he took out. So uh, does he have the capacity to continue to do that in a re-election? Will he have a serious uh, uh, challenge in in a re-election campaign? That all remains to be seen. But, you know, the FEC stuff goes on in every campaign at the presidential level all the way down to the uh, uh, to the House and Senate races. So this is not something that's highly unusual, but it is serious. And the FEC really uh, has high expectations expectations that these folks uh, take care of business and do the paperwork exactly uh, pro forma of what they're supposed to. Yeah, and I think that, you know, as Neva said, the bigger issue here is that ratio of of debt uh, in the campaign to cash on hand for an incumbent member of Congress. I mean, if you look at uh, Congresswoman Kendra Horn, I mean, her fundraising is through the roof. And if you look at, you know, debt, I mean, it's, it's virtually non-existent. And, you know, now, given Congresswoman Horn is going to be one of the most tar- she's going to be the right. subject of one of the most targeted campaigns to knock out an incumbent anywhere in the country. The fifth district in Oklahoma is going to be a highly intense competitive race moving Where into the Hearns might not be that. Where Hearns might not be, but if I'm uh, if I'm a uh, political consultant and somebody comes to me and they say, "Well, do you want to run against an incumbent?" Normally, you say not. But if you are a Republican and you want to challenge Congressman Hearn right now, you look at that debt to cash on hand ratio and you say, "Here's a person who has some liabilities." That that most incumbents do but not. But if you're a Republican looking at challenging a sitting a sitting member of Congress, you better have uh, a pretty deep pocket yourself yeah. or a lot of friends because the reality is uh, when they get into a campaign and they really uh, uh, have to uh, get into the full throttle campaign mode, they're going to be able to raise that money not only in-state but back in Washington, D.C. from uh, from the folks that want to see them return. The governor's mansion is currently empty, awaiting extensive repairs. The more than 90-year-old 14,000-square-foot home apparently needs a lot of work, and lawmakers allocated about $2 million for repairs. Apparently, work needs to be done on windows, roofing, plumbing, and even removing mold. Ryan, did you know the house had gotten this bad? Well, I, you know, I think that, I don't know that we'd all known that it had gotten this bad, but uh, maybe it's a metaphor for the state. We've got a lot of deferred maintenance. (laughs) We've got a lot of deferred maintenance. And, uh, you know, I think that there are questions now that the governor's office is taking seriously about whether the governor's mansion itself should remain a residence. Because if if it's remaining a residence, that creates additional upkeep and maintenance uh, and repair cost that maybe just restoring it to the point that it becomes almost a a museum or an attraction or something used for special events, and then the first family is housed somewhere else. I mean, that's I I do think that there are some important uh, uh, reasons why we have things like the governor's mansion. I think that uh, it create you know it's like these democratic norms you know that regardless of who is in power they occupy these certain places right. and I think that it it helps us you know respect the the because those, those individuals that occupy that they occupy by the virtue of the people and so to to put them there uh, and to remove them from their from their normal houses but to put put them there I think is a democratic norm that there's some arguable importance to 
But then the question remains, is it worth spending this much money? And if we're spending it now, what are we going to be spending in 10, 15, 20 years? Neva? Well, I mean, this is not a new conversation. I mean, Mary Fallon, back in 2015, there was conversation about her uh, uh, moving out of the mansion for six months and making some of these very needed uh, renovations and changes. At that point, it was a financial consideration. Now we're, you know, back to the drawing board. Uh, the first family uh, is not uh, going to stay in, in the uh, governor's mansion this year. And I think we will see many of these things uh, many of these things addressed. The question will be the price tag. I mean, uh, the, the uh, legislature, I believe, has appropriated $2 million. Some of the early estimates were, you know, triple that or, like or six, higher. So, yeah. so, so uh, you know, it is a cost factor, but it's like the it's like our capital. I mean, uh, when you reach a point with, with buildings that are, uh, you know, approaching 100 years old uh, or, or or in need of great re- of repair, then you have a situation where from the from the vantage point of this is the, the people's home, this is the people's uh, capital, uh, then you have to take those things into account and there is a cost related to it. Um, now the, the conversation which uh, it seems to be brewing of whether or not to build a, perhaps build a, another uh, governor's residence or mansion, you know, perhaps even on the grounds there uh, behind the, the original original uh, building, which was built in 1928, yeah. uh, and do that uh, with with non-appropriated dollars, do it with private funds. I think that's a conversation that uh, may, we may see some serious action on uh, in, in the near future. So um, I think that the bottom line is we have a situation where at least we're now seeing, seeing something happen that's long overdue, and hopefully uh, they will be able to do it in a, in a fashion that is quick so that the people do have an opportunity. This is a, this is a place where people can come, at least see the first floor, uh, see the history of, of, this, uh, of, of the governor's mansion, and I think it's something that, uh, that we should take care of, and it's long overdue. And there's security that you have to think about as well, because the, right now, they're staying in uh, a home run by the National Guard. So you, you can't just have him buy a house in Nichols Hills. It's, you've got to, there's got to be some kind of security issues you've got to deal with. Yeah, and I, 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 I like the idea that it's proximate to the Capitol, you know, that it's walking mm-hmm. distance. I don't know. I mean, I don't know I if Governor, I, I don't know, I don't know <laughs> if Governor well, State ever walks. Walk. He may. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, he's, he rode a tractor to the Capitol once. <laughs> I mean, he may walk. Uh, but, you know, I, I like the proximity to the Capitol. Sure. I think that um, I think that it's just the, this, you know, I think symbolism in a, in a democracy there it can be important and it can be powerful and remind us of mm-hmm. of, uh, of who is uh, in power and how we hold them accountable and, and what their roles are and so you know I think a lot of the decisions and the, the discussion are going to be geared towards this uh, are going to be decided uh, without a lot of input they're going to be decided by the second round of bids that come in and if we see second round bids that come in again for six million dollars and there's really no way to get below that point I think that decision is going to be uh, to have a separate residence, whether it's on the grounds or somewhere else, is going to be expedited. And turn this one into just a maybe museum yeah, I mean, yeah. and, a, and, a, and a place where people can go for for meetings and, and just and, like yeah. uh, just like the additional facility that was built on the grounds, the uh, Phillips Pavilion that was done during the Keating administration. I mean, it 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 has a great deal of use by both. Uh, uh, people in government, but certainly uh, private citizens and uh, other groups who use that. So it is a facility uh, uh, just adjacent to the Capitol that people know where it is. That there's a there's a I think a high level need to be able to have this as a as a facility.
facility that is uh, uh, that's functioning and that we have all of these issues that have already been outlined uh, addressed because they are long overdue. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff or management.